2: This week, an episode that premiered in June of 2011. It's an episode we call Crisis.
3: Okay.
4: Risk is the show that's hosted by Kevin Owens and the Pervert. The stories are true and sometimes how
5: It's Risk the Podcast. Stories of things going horribly wrong. Stories meant for grown-ups. I'm too young to hear the show.
4: The podcast. You hear that,
2: Samson? Beautiful. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison that was a future fan of the show up top. And you know, you you, you kinda aim to go through this life. Without ever hearing an eight-year-old refer to you as a pervert, but, you know, the gap between expectations and results, folks. This is Pogo behind me now. He uh, does a lot of mixing and mashing up with the um, Disney stuff. I think I veered toward happier music because the stories on this episode are pretty appalling. This is the crisis episode, folks, or the... If you think you're having a bad day, listen to this poor soul episode. Our first story comes from one of the monumental figures for all podcasters. He is the host and producer of some of the longest lasting and most acclaimed and beloved podcasts ever. Jesse Thorne of The Sound of Young America, Jordan Jesse Goh, and he's got his he's got his thumbprint on quite a lot of wonderful stuff. And he has been a wonderful mentor and a great help on a lot of wonderful shows, including this one. Jesse told a story I can't get out of my head about his father at our live show in Los Angeles at UCB. This is called Long Way Home.
3: So my dad grew up in kind of an abusive household, and in order to defy that abusive household, he volunteered for the Navy very early in the Vietnam War. I think he probably learned pretty quickly that he was ill-suited to the military, and he ended up on an aircraft carrier in Southeast Asia where, because he was ill-suited to the military, he was constantly getting in trouble. And so he ended up getting the worst jobs that you can get on an aircraft carrier, which are... Bomb loader, uh, bathroom washer, and projectionist and bathroom washer that 's horrible because of the poops and peas um, and bomb loader is horrible because it 's incredibly traumatic because if you make any mistakes, you die and you kill a lot of other people because the bombs are are live and horrible and what what made it, being the projectionist the worst job was that. He had to show the films uh, from the tail cameras of the airplanes that were on the carrier. And so he would essentially load bombs during the day. And then when the planes came back, he would project the killing onto a big screen that he had enabled. And so needless to say, he was traumatized and he became something of an alcoholic. And he also was a leader in the peace movement. But he was an alcoholic and had a very difficult life for a really long time until he went into AA when I was like three. So he has really severe post-traumatic stress disorder. And one of the weird ways that this manifests itself is that he's really suspicious, which is a typical PTSD thing. He's really paranoid. One of the ways that that manifested itself with me was that he was always paranoid that I was going to turn into him. Because by the time he was a teenager, he was, like, doing speed and running away from home and stuff. And he wasn't satisfied that I just, like, you know, my, I went to arts high school and didn't do drugs. And he thought that was really... He didn't believe that that was true. Um, In fact, once he was yelling at me about something, and then he picked something up off of my desk in my room and said, what is this? Is this blah, blah, blah? And it was a drug that I have still never heard of again. (laughs) And I was like, no, it's not. You know, like I'm like crying. I'm like 15 years old. He said, no, it's not that. And I finally see what it was, and it was turkey jerky. (laughs) I don't even know what drug looks like turkey jerky, maybe. Um... (laughs) So, when I was starting my sophomore year in college, my dad was driving me with all my stuff in the back and so that I could move into the dorms. And we were listening to the radio, and a Sly and the Family Stone song came on the radio. And both he and I really loved Sly and the Family Stone. And he said to me, Jesse, what's up with Sly Stone? Is he dead? And this was before he made his big comeback when he was still a recluse. Well, he's still a recluse, but one who hadn't made a weird... Grammy comeback with a mohawk and everything and a humpback. Um, and I said, no, I think he's like a semi-vegetable, I think is his situation. And he said, oh, is that so? And I said, yeah. And he said, was it because of drugs? And I said, I, yeah, I mean, I think so. And he said, was it because of the drugs that he took in the 60s or the drugs that he takes now for mental health issues? And I said, I think the latter, but I'm not really sure. And he said, was it like a drug-induced psychosis? And I said, I honestly don't know. And he said, hey, did I ever tell you about my drug-induced psychosis? (laughs) And I said, no. And he said, when I was living in Hawaii, which he did after he sort of burnt out on the peace movement in the early 70s, he said, I was living in, in, on the big island of Hawaii in Hilo, and I had been eating omelets made with magic mushrooms for a week. <laughs> and I was nude, and I was in a sinkhole, and I don't know if you guys have ever been to a volcanic beach, but there's these volcanic rocks with big, huge holes. And he said, I was standing in a sinkhole with water up to my waist, and I was having this really powerful hallucination. I said, okay, because I had said nothing to prompt this. I want to make that absolutely clear. (laughs) And he said, there were 12 huge men, each 20 feet high, representing every race in the world. And they were there to decide whether I should live or die. And at the time, I wasn't sure whether I should live or die, because I was still dealing with the trauma of being in the war. And I wasn't sure that I had done anything worthwhile with my life. And I had moved to Hawaii and eaten magic mushrooms for a week rather than deal with the peace movement. And he said it was difficult for me to even make the case for myself. I spent hours in this sinkhole arguing with these 12 angry men. And I finally came to be able to tell them that my life was worth living. They tried me and they... Decided that I should live and it was one of the most powerful experiences of my life and that was when the Hawaiian guys grabbed me and <laughs> So I don't know if you guys have uh, are familiar with the history of Hawaii But the relationship between your white people and your Hawaiian people is one that is uh, Complicated fraught if you will I Man, a lot of Hawaiian guys not crazy about white guys, especially naked ones in a sinkhole who are talking to invisible giant judges <laughs> And so they pulled my dad out of the sinkhole, and they started kicking the shit out of him. And my dad wasn't that long out of the Navy, and he was in good shape, and he said, uh, and he was also had been taking hallucinogens for a week, so he, he wasn't feeling pain. And he beat them off and ran into the surf. And the Hawaiian guys didn't want to get their clothes wet, so they didn't follow him into the surf. And they started picking up rocks off of the ground and throwing them at him. And my dad was so high that rather than dodge the rocks, he thought a good plan was to catch the rocks. (laughs) So he's getting pelted with rocks. (laughs) Eventually the Hawaiian guys get tired of even throwing rocks and they say, hey, Howley, we decided we don't want to beat you up anymore. You can come back. And so my dad came back (laughs) and they started kicking the shit out of him again. (laughs) And what's amazing is this then happened again. The whole process from beginning to end, not the week of mushrooms, but he went back into the water. They started throwing rocks at him again. Again, he thought he could catch them. Again, they told him that they had decided not to beat him up. He came back and they started beating him up again. And this time he was pretty battered and bruised and he was only saved by a Hawaiian woman whose land it was who came out and started shooting rock salt at everyone (laughs) because she wanted everyone to get off her land now this lady like the other Hawaiian dudes was no big fan of my dad's so instead of taking him to the hospital or something like that she just left him there after he had sort of stumbled away And he told me, I just remember him sitting in the car. He said, so I was naked and I was having all these crazy hallucinations and I was really badly beat up. So I figured the best thing to do would be to walk down the road until I got arrested. So he walked down the road for two days because this is Hawaii in 1971 and he was not on the populous side of the big island and it just, there weren't that many cops cruising by. He finally got arrested. He ended up in the psych ward of the jail for like three or six months. He doesn't remember exactly. He finally got out, but he was still having all these symptoms. And the only way that he got clean was that he was offered a job in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he left in November. And he said he didn't know anyone to buy drugs from, and it was too cold to go outside and ask. (laughs) And he said, so I guess I never did tell you about my drug-induced psychosis, huh? (laughs) And he certainly hadn't. It occurred to me that at the time, after this lifetime of him telling me these stories about being a homeless alcoholic and painting the inside of his bathroom to look like the inside of a serviceman's coffin while listening to Paint It Black over and over (laughs) on 45, He had finally told me this story not as someone who was sure that I was going to become him or that I was him, but as an adult who he trusted to make different decisions than he'd made. So in a funny way, that sophomore year of college was my first year, at least in my dad's eyes as an adult, I kind of feel like the 12 giant men of every race would look kindly upon me. So, thank you very much. We are just flat batshit confused.
2: This situation is totally fucked!
3: This could be the beginning of the end for the human race.
2: The situation is totally out of control i've got a madman making me pull out my hair already
4: where's my flamethrower
2: it's indestructible it's indescribable nothing can stop it
4: oh shit oh shit
2: mob hysteria sweeps one city before long the nation and then the world could fall before the blood-curdling threat of oh shit bro This is Risk. That was a collage by Jeff Barr. He was using some footage from our pal Gel Soul. And this is a song that is from the era that uh, Jesse Thorne was just describing. This is uh, a group called Birth Control. This little story coming up, I told it at the uh, Risk show at the pit in New York just last week. We call this one. Graduation day. When you graduate from college, everyone says, you know, when you graduate, you're going to enter the real world. But at that time, like my big priority in life was partying. And at NYU, Graduation is kind of a beautiful thing because they fill Washington Square Park and it's always a beautiful, sunshiny day and there's all these purple caps and gowns, all these thousands of proud parents out there, and my parents were flying up from Ohio that day, the day of my graduation, and I could just picture them on the plane sharing my dad's Bible, reading <laughs> passages of it. My dad's Bible is so worn out that, you know, it has to be held together with a rubber band. and. Oddly enough, I had kind of been at church that morning, too, in a way, because back at that time, there was a club called the Limelight. (laughs) on sixth avenue and on the gay nights i had discovered that if you walked all the way up the steeple to the top there was a room that was almost completely dark where men had sexual relations with one another so i was there as much as possible (laughs) And I had been there the night before my graduation. Well, I woke up the morning of my graduation very hungover and scratching. And I realized I've been scratching all through the night. And I took a good look down at my groin and I saw a kind of a brown speck move. So. I assessed my situation. I said, it's eight o'clock in the morning. My parents are showing up at my apartment door at 10 and the ceremony starts at 12 and I have crabs. And I knew some things about these things. I knew that they could live in clothing and fabric for maybe two days, and they could scurry across clothes from one person to the other. So now I've got this nightmare running through my head of me hugging my mom, and then a little bug starts its little journey, and I'm the first man ever to give crabs to his mom. So I was at war, just immediately. I just started shaving everything. (laughs) shaving the backs of my hands. I'm shaving my ass. I'm shaving my kneecaps. I looked like a fucked up candy cane because there's little streams of blood all over. (laughs) And then I put on that insecticide shampoo, you know, and just feel it sizzling all over my raw body. And then I realized, oh my God, it's nine o'clock. I've only got an Power for laundry. So I'm getting all the tablecloths and the bed linens and just that the cushions everything I could fit into like six big garbage bags that I'm taking out and <laughs> I'm on my way to the laundry when I realize that I haven't gotten tickets for my parents to attend my graduation. So, at the laundromat, I start calling every number at NYU I could possibly think of. I finally get this message. If you don't have tickets, you can watch the graduation in a little classroom on a TV. Well, my stomach just dropped. I thought, oh my God, my parents have sacrificed so much to send me to this school. And they're flying up from Ohio, and I just could not bear to tell them that I'd arranged for them to watch it on a TV in a room. So I did the most manly thing I could think of. I wrote them a note, (laughs) and taped it to my apartment door, and it said, Mom and Dad, NYU really fucked this one up. And I've just been running around trying to rectify their mistakes with ticketing and all. I'll tell you what, you watch it in that classroom, I'll meet you after the ceremony. (laughs) So now I'm running back. I'm like, okay, I've given myself a little bit of a break here, I can at least get the laundry done. I get to the laundry and I realize, I can't put this stuff in the dryer. I spent all my money at the fucking sex club last night. (laughs) So now my like 300 pounds of laundry are kind of like 800 pounds of laundry because they're all sopping wet in like six bags and I'm hobbling down the street with this stuff and I'm bleeding and I'm heaving and I'm sweating and I run right into my parents. And my mom says, why are you doing all the laundry at once? And I said, oh, well, the thing is, it's just that um, I have crabs. I didn't know what else to say. So now all three of us are standing there on the sidewalk. None of us know what to say. Well, the graduation went fine they didn't seem to mind all that much about the classroom and the extermination was a success (laughs) and the next day we went to the Museum of Modern Art me mom and dad and dad was kind of walking around the sculpture garden and I was sitting there in the sculpture garden with my mom we're at this little table and we're looking at Picasso's goat you know and she she takes a hold of my hand and it was the first time that I kinda like really felt the wrinkles that were starting to be there in her hand and could kind of feel like the fragility that was starting to be there in the bones of her hand. And it was the first sensation of, oh geez, I might have to take care of them someday. And she said to me, you know, Kevin, I really am so proud of you. You've put down roots in this huge city and you graduated from NYU. I just wonder when you'll ever grow up. And you know what? I wonder that too. (laughs) Okay, now I'm moving on, deep, and the my double baby, give me the bite of so I'll sound with mouth full of crabs.
1: Say how much you love me. You seem to think you're glad we're friends. You always want to spend more time with me. You say you'll be there till the end. But if the words you say are true, there's still one
4: thing left to do, and that's give the argument. <laughs>
2: A weird episode folks that was crabs by weeble followed by david crab i'll bet you're wondering what's playing behind me well it's max essa it is max essa my friends song called white shoes blue dreams i wouldn't be surprised if you were also thinking is hallie haglin telling a story next yes yes she is hallie Haglund is a writer for the daily show super smart and super lovely lady. She really went out on a limb telling this story for the first she's ever told with us uh, at the pit last week here in New York. We call this story Too Bad.
5: So, you know when you first meet someone and they look really nice and sort of boring, and then you find out that, you know, they get in car crashes on purpose because it's the only thing that makes them feel sexually aroused? (laughs) I'm not like that, okay? I'm as nice and boring as I look. I'm the good child in my family. And I didn't exactly choose for it to be that way. I sort of inherited that title by default. See, I'm the youngest of three. My sister Jillian is eight years older and my brother Eric is five years older. Since I came last, they sort of got first dibs on all the cool shit. So I got the scary room in the attic. I always got the hump seat in the middle on car trips and I was the good child. My sister had actually claimed the title of bad kid long before my brother or I could ever give her a run for her money. We tried, we really tried, but she did not fuck around. (laughs) So I remember when uh, (laughs) we got really into prank calling, my brother and I. And we figured out a way to call radio stations, and we had this trick where we could run down the seven-second delay. And one time, we actually got the phrase, and I quote, "Cock sucking dickweed, asshole, asshole, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you," before they hung up on us. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, we're so bad. We're gonna get in so much trouble." And then my sister got sent to rehab. <laughs> And then one time, we were playing with smoke bombs in our neighborhood, and um, we accidentally lit the neighbor's tree on fire, uh, which lit the neighbor's roof on fire, which lit the neighbor's neighbor's roof on fire. And we were like, come on, arson, that's a fucking crime. We're going to get in trouble for this one. And then my sister tried to kill herself. So... <laughs> and, uh, I actually remember that night, um, my mom was at the hospital with my sister and my dad was um, trying to explain to us what happened and he he had his briefcase open, I remember, and at one point he just sort of, he started crying right into his briefcase and he said to us, he said, I just don't know what to do, can you tell me what to do? And I just looked at him and I I thought, oh, dude, I'm eight. You might want to ask someone with the wisdom of a fourth grade education. But I also sort of realized at that moment that it wasn't my responsibility to be worse than my sister. I was supposed to actually be the good kid because someone had to show my parents that they weren't total failures. they weren't, they were great parents. They still are, you know, they did all the things you're supposed to do. They took us to Dairy Queen and they let us have a dog. And, um, and I love my sister, I really love her, but um, you know, I really believe that um, my mom just sort of shot a dud out of the womb. <laughs> and it happens, okay? Like even Bruce Springsteen wrote Tunnel of Love, okay? So, fast forward to my junior year in college, and everyone in my family is grasping for their fullest potential. I am a student at Yale, my brother is a Peace Corps volunteer in Africa, and my sister is homeless and addicted to crystal meth. Uh, You like that? Uh, It was funny for us to... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but so all is right with the world. And um, I, I'm about to come home just for two weeks to Denver, and then I have this fellowship that I've received to Brazil. So I have a very high-achieving summer sprawled out in front of me. And I come home to Denver, and it's the last night that before I leave to Brazil, and my best friend Abby and I decide we got to celebrate. And instead of deciding to celebrate in Denver, we're like, no, we're going to drive to Boulder, this city that's 45 miles away, because we heard they had really strong margaritas at this restaurant. (laughs) Um, But honestly, it didn't occur to me that I would get in trouble, because that's not what I did. So... The whole night is sort of a sloppy slideshow now in my memory, I remember being at the restaurant and then I remember being at a bar and losing my credit card. And then I remember being at the gas station buying a six pack because Abby and I really needed some drinks for the ride home. And then I remember being at Taco Bell because I was gonna totally puke if I didn't need some Taco Bell before we got on the road. (laughs) And then I remember um, seeing lights and hearing sirens and trying to remember how you pull over on the highway. And then Abby just squeezing my hand and saying, don't worry, our dads are both lawyers. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) um, the officer asked me to step out of the car and walk 10 steps. And according to the police report, because I don't remember this, I walked 29 steps (laughs) and then, quote, very politely asked if I could stop. (laughs) So he put handcuffs on me and he told Abby that she couldn't come with us to the police station, so she should sort of walk in the direction of the lights of the city, that maybe someone could help her there. Uh, (laughs) So it's crazy how fast you sober up in the back of a police car. And I thought to myself, shit, I wish I had asked him to do this before he gave me the roadside test, because I think I really would have nailed it now. (laughs) But I didn't say that, I just, I sat quietly, and it's so big in the back of those things, and you feel so small. And at one point, the officer sort of turned back and yelled, you know, I really appreciate your outstanding behavior. I'm definitely gonna make a note of this in my police report. And I was like, I can't believe this. Even as a criminal, I am getting gold stars for my good behavior. And we get to the station And a a female police officer is there, and she takes my mug shot, which I smiled for because I think it's rude to scowl when someone's taking your picture. And, uh, you know, she checked out at work, and she just sort of said, that's a lovely picture. (laughs) Um, So, when you get your one phone call, it's always collect. And so the first thing that whoever you're calling hears is um, you are receiving a collect call from the Boulder County Sheriff's Department. Will you accept the charges? And so I hear my dad at the other end of the line and he says, yes, yes. And then he's there and he says, Jillian, what happened? And I just say, no, dad, it's Hallie. And uh, he didn't really sound angry, he just sort of. Sounded sad and, and tired, um, but don't worry, he got a full night of sleep because he didn't pick me up till the next morning. <laughs> so they don't put you uh, really in a, in a cell, they just put me in sort of like a holding area with this, um, this older guy and this African-American woman and I was really scared and at one point I started crying and the woman was trying to, to console me and she said, you're fine. Nice, white-looking girl like you, you're fine. Have you ever been in trouble before? And I, so I shook my hand. She said, you're fine. And she was right. And the, and the next morning, my dad came.
4: <laughs>
5: my dad came and picked me up. And we didn't really say much in the car. At one point, he, uh, he turned to me and he actually said, aren't you going to say anything? Don't you have anything to say? And I didn't, so I just stared out the window and he didn't ask again. And he dropped me off at home and went to work and I let myself in because my mom had also already gone to work. And I went and I sat down in the kitchen just sort of numbly reading my police report and all of a sudden I heard a noise. And a couple months ago, we had had all the locks changed in my house because while my parents were visiting my brother in Africa, my sister had broken in and pawned all of our television sets. (laughs) So I hear this noise, and I'm so scared, and my heart is pounding. And I sort of stand up fearfully, and I, I start walking into the hallway, and my heart's pounding like when you, like think you're going to see a ghost or get raped or something. and <laughs> So I get to the hallway and, and I look and I can sort of see through the, uh, the, the door to the first floor bathroom. And my sister is breaking in through the window. And I don't know what to do. I mean, I'm not going to stop her because like she could kick my ass. <laughs> so she, she rips out the screen and she gets up the glass and she climbs in and she looks up and she she looks sort of equally shocked to see me and it's crazy because she doesn't really look like the badass of my childhood or like the annoying irritating yet lovable tramp of my adolescence she looks like a stranger she's filthy and her skin is green and she has all these sores all over her body and um, you know she's wearing all of this clothing even though it's 90 degrees out and I'm terrified she sorta looks at me and she must have known because she looks hurt and she just says are you scared of me don't be scared just call mom okay just call mom so I call mom And we go to the kitchen to wait for her. And my sister, you know, she wants to seem hard and she's sort of out of it. And she opens the refrigerator and she's rifling through uh, for a drink. But my mom is a real lightweight, so she can't buy the full bottles of Corona. She can only buy like the tiny, like, coronitas. So my sister grabs a coronita out of the fridge, pops it open, she's like chugging these tiny bottles. Like she's some like, Junkie giant. <laughs> my mom finally comes home and she comes into the kitchen and she looks completely haggard. And my sister starts to ask her for money. And my mom always gives my sister money, but this time she looks at her and she says, No, just go away, Jillian. I don't have anything for you. Just go away. And I feel so bad for my sister, because her luck has finally ran out. And I know how that feels, because it had happened to me the night before. And I also feel bad because she doesn't really understand that the reason she's being sent away is that I'm so fucked up that my mom just doesn't have any energy for her anymore. But on the other hand, there's some small childish part in, inside of me that's kind of happy and and says like, oh, so this is how this feels. Thank you.
2: Hagland. Uh, by the way, Hallie confirmed for me that her sister is actually doing uh, much better now than she was at the end of that story. So I was kind of dying to know that. I'm glad she said that. Sometimes in the workshops, the storytelling workshops we teach, someone will leave you hanging a little bit about something. But the entire class will kind of uh, take turns, like picking apart what it was they were dying to know. That was Rockaby Baby doing a lullaby version of Radiohead's um, No... What, what's the name of that song? No surprises. No surprises. Surprise! I forgot the name of the song. No. No surprises there either. that's it folks our crises have abated this is brett denon behind me now fantastic he is at brettdenon.net i'm gonna stop talking so you can hear the rest of this song remember folks today is the day take a risk